Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. And uh, th- this other handsome gentleman that we have on the show with us that you're looking at right now is none other than the incredible Jim Osmond. <laughs> hey, guys. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Jim, before we jump into our topic today, uh, for those who don't know you, why don't you just give us kind of a little rundown of your life story and who you are and where you're serving, all that kind of jazz. Yeah, currently I am pastoring, and Lord willing, uh, for I certainly am, I'll pastor this church for the rest of my life. I'm pastoring a a church in rural North Idaho, about an hour south of the U.S.-Canadian border, and outside of Sandpoint, Idaho. It's called Kootenai Community Church. I've been pastoring here since 1996, so going on almost 27 years now. And I started when I was 24 years old and small church and the Lord has blessed us and we've grown and, and uh, the Lord has been very good to our congregation. So I, I enjoy that. That's what I have given my life to. And, and I love doing it. I got saved in 1985 as a result of the ministry of this church. They sent me to a local <clears throat> Bible camp about south of here. And though I'd heard the gospel plenty of times before that, I was at that camp in 1985 that uh, the gospel came to me as Paul describes it in First Thessalonians chapter one in spirit and in power and and uh, changed my life. God regenerated me there and uh, put me on a totally different course for my life than what I had ever intended uh, prior to that. And now, uh, having having got saved at that camp, I uh, came back to the church here and kind of attended youth group and Sunday school and ended up going to Bible college in Southern Saskatchewan, Canada for four years where I met my bride and we got married in 1993, took a year off from college. And I went back from my fourth year there and graduated in 95 and then started pastoring in 1996. And I've been doing that ever since. Awesome. Well, brother, another thing, you've got a couple of books that you've written. Why don't, why don't you tell us about those? Uh, and then for guys who are listening, I'll put those in the show notes because I, I think they're incredibly rich, especially for today's kind of, Scene. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, the first book, book I wrote is called Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. And that book deals with um, a lot of the modern spiritual warfare methodology, like binding Satan, rebuking the devil, uh, spiritual curses and generational curses and praying hedges of thorns. And we deal in there with what is a biblical approach. And and I suggest that it's a that spiritual warfare, true spiritual warfare is a is a battle for the truth, not a battle for territory. So that's why it's called Truth the Territory. Second book I wrote is called uh, Selling the Stairway to Heaven, where I critique the claims of Colton Burpo and Don Piper and a man named Eben Alexander, uh, men who claim to have died and or at least had outer body experiences and gone to see the afterlife. <clears throat> One of those, Eben Alexander, doesn't claim to be a Christian. In fact, he claims to be agnostic and somewhat caught up in the new age, but he definitely had an experience of the spiritual while in a coma. And uh, he wrote a book called Proof of Heaven. And so I, I deal with those claims and, and talk about whether we should be expecting or be, uh, people to go to heaven and come back and tell us about it, or whether we should even believe the claims that they, they make. The third book is called The Prosperity of the Wicked, a study of Psalm 73. 
that deals with the question of why do the wicked seem to prosper? And then uh, the fourth book is called God Doesn't Whisper. And that is a that deals with the whole hearing the voice of God. Does God speak to us in promptings, nudgings, you know, still small voices through a peace in my heart, signs, circumstances, all of that stuff. How do we make decisions? And should we expect God to be whispering instructions for day to day life in our ears as believers? I deal with that issue in that book. And then currently I am writing a book and it's going to be out before this year's end called God Doesn't Try. And that's a defense of the sovereignty of God. So it's going to deal with um, the fact that God, we can never say that God tries to do anything. God's not trying to save people. He's not trying to speak to us. He's not trying to execute justice, establish a kingdom, make creation better, any of those things. God doesn't try to do anything because try is a word that can only be used to describe uh, somebody doing something or attempting to do something if failure is a possibility. And since failure is only due to a lack of knowledge or a lack of power, and God lacks neither knowledge nor power, we can never say that God tries to do anything. He just, he either does it or he doesn't. So it's kind of a defense of the sovereignty of God uh, applied to uh, soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology. Mm. Man, that sounds really exciting. I'll have to get yeah, hands thank on you. that when it comes out. Um, it, you know, it's interesting between uh, all of those books you mentioned, there are questions that just about every single Christian has at some point in their Christian walk. And so, uh, yeah, if you don't have those books, I'd, I'd recommend you you get them. Well, guys, let's jump into our topic today. Um, so we're kind of taking a, a, a break on our systematic theology series um, and, and having you on. And one of the things that I've, I've been noticing for some time, and I think we all we all do, and we see this in church history, is the tendency for Christians to start to live their life not out of um, biblical knowledge, but out of being influenced by other things, uh, largely our feelings often, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so Christians making decisions out of uh, fear um, or out of just whatever emotion they're experiencing in, in the moment. And what inevitably that leads to is Christians sort of flip-flopping all over the place, leading unsteady, unstable lives, and often making choices that are just really poor, right? Um, I'm reminded of uh, Paul's admonition in Ephesians in chapter 4 when he talks about the need to grow up and to be mature in the faith, right? Uh, Lest you're carried around by every wind of doctrine. Sometimes it's not so much that we're carried around by every wind of doctrine, but by our feelings, you know, yeah. uh, this thing and that thing. Um, so let me just kind of open that up. May- maybe I'll start with, with with a question to you, Jim. Do you see that Christians can be very easily swayed in their Christian life by feelings? Do you think that's a very real danger or maybe not so much? How, how would you talk to that? Uh, yeah, I definitely think it's a, it's a huge danger. In fact, it's a very worldly way. It's a very worldly perspective um, that ends up kind of infiltrating its way into Christian living in the church. You, you look at our world, our world is governed by feelings, right? Uh, people wake up in the morning and though they're biologically a, a male, they feel pretty or they feel like a woman that day. So that's how they identify, right? So they, they want all of reality structured around their feelings. And so you have people like, uh, and this is just a contemporary example, Dylan Mulvaney, who 
who wakes up and decides he's gay and then decides that he's a woman and then decides he's an adolescent girl and then decides he's non-binary, bisexual, and then making a full swing. Every day he wakes up feeling something different. So that's what he is. And so he's, he's somebody who's driven by every passion, every desire, every feeling. And, and this is what uh, our whole culture is being trained to think in terms of their feelings. How do you feel today? That's how you should identify. And then everybody else's reality needs to comport to that. Well, that slips into the church and becomes the predominant way that Christians end up end up uh, doing life and ministry. Um, we become very worldly in that we are no longer a people that is characterized by truth, but instead we become characterized by our feelings. And so many church services are geared to uh, facilitate that and almost appeal to that. Like the whole seeker sensitive movement is really a movement that is geared to appeal to our desire to feel a certain way. So they craft an environment when they come to church with the music, with the lighting, with the people who are there greeting you at the door, with the programs and the props and the stages and the sermon series and everything is intended to get you to feel a certain way. It's, it's all feelings based. It's all an appeal to the emotions and to the feeling. And oftentimes, um, sermons are crafted to elicit certain feelings or emotions. Mm. They want to create in you a certain feeling. And so rather than allowing the truth to, to simply be proclaimed and, you know, appeal to the intellect that you will believe this and know this to be true and that your feelings should be then the caboose that is pulled behind the emotions of, or sorry, the behind the engine of truth, uh, your emotions or your feelings end up driving the train and it's the opposite of what it should be. We should be a truth-driven and intellectually driven and mind-driven people. And the emotions will follow that. The feelings will follow. So the world is kind of uh, playing the tune of how it is that we should be doing church and ministry. And Christians have adopted a very worldly mentality in terms of how we do church and how we think of church and God and, and being part of a Christian community. And so that ends up creeping into even the day-to-day -day decisions that we make. You have... Uh, you have Christians making decisions about how they feel about something. So, you know, they wake up in the morning and, and they feel like this is the direction they should be going with their life. And they, they call that feeling the voice of God. And this is, I deal with this in that, in that book here in the, uh, uh, God doesn't whisper. <laughs> Sorry. I almost forgot the name of my own book there. Uh, it's about hearing the voice of God, but God doesn't whisper. I deal with that subject in there that the people will feel a certain way or get a feeling or an inclination or a nudge or an impression. They say, well, I must be the still small voice, God whispering in my heart. Mm -hmm. I feel that this is true. And so this must be true. This must be the direction that God wants me to go or the decision God wants me to make or the the, the truth God wants me to claim. And, and it's all based upon feeling. So it, it it's a worldly idea that the, the devil would have us to be driven by our feelings and emotions. And, and unfortunately, it is just pervasive in the church. And it's almost impossible to get people to think in terms of something other than how they feel about something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really a good point. And I think I would you agree with this when I think of um, when I think of this subject, particularly I, I would encourage people that the very first step is just to simply realize that we are influenced by our culture. And so w yeah. we can't get around that. It, if, if you don't think that's true, then y your guards let down, right? And inevitably you're going to be controlled by those things. Yeah, it's the water in which we swim. I mean, a fish doesn't even realize that it's wet. A fish doesn't realize it's in water. And and it's very easy for us to get caught up in a culture that's driven this way and thinks this way and to adopt the world's thinking on it, which is why Paul says in Romans 12 that our, our mind should be renewed and our heart should be renewed by the word of God. 
and that we shouldn't be pressed into the mold of the world, the worldly way of thinking and doing ministry and, and thinking about God, the world that there's a worldly way of being spiritual and Christians adopt that. Then there's a worldly way of being secular and atheistic and godless too. But what we tend to do is since we, since we swim in the waters of the world and we're, we're trained by our culture, by our education, by our entertainment, by our pop culture, by the people around us, the godless people, what you see on the magazine racks and in the headlines and on the internet and everything bombards us with a way of thinking that leaves God out. And then Christians end up taking that way of thinking that leaves God out, which if you leave God out, you're leaving truth out of the mix. And then what is the most real and relevant and pertinent thing you experience or are exposed to? If you take truth out of the mix, it's your feelings, your emotions, your the way that the world thinks that seems to be true. And so Christians end up taking that and then just baptizing that worldliness and spiritual verbiage spiritual language and Christianizing it. And then you end up with, and this is what the entire seeker sensitive movement is. You end up with a Christianity that is nothing more than worldliness baptized. Hmm. And that's just a, that's just a feelings based, emotionally driven uh, experience based or an experience driven Christianity. And which is really yeah. not Christianity at all. I'm using that term loosely there. It's, it's really something entirely different because it's not based on truth and the word of God. So, so what do you say to someone that might uh, say, yeah, but come on, Jim, aren't you, aren't you putting God into a box? Isn't God able to relate to a lot of different expressions and, and, and you can't see to the person's heart. Um, so, so why are we creating these lines of, uh, be, we're being legalistic. We're creating lines that God never intended. You know, as long as people love the Lord, let them, let them worship the way they're being moved to worship. But what would you say to that? Yeah, I would, I would say two things to that. Number one, God puts himself in a box and revelation of himself and how he wants to be worshipped is God saying, here's the box in which you are to relate to me. Uh, we are not free to come to God on our own terms. We're, we're commanded to come to God on his terms. And somebody might say to Moses, when after Nadab and Abihu were slayed for yeah. their profane worship, somebody could easily say, wow, Moses, you're, you're putting God in a box, telling him that you can't just burn incense however they want and offer up whatever worship they want. Those, those events in the Old Testament are there for our education, for our edification and knowledge that we might see that God takes his worship very seriously. And so if he has revealed who he is and how he must be worshiped, you and I are not free to, to tamper with that. And um, when we do, we become just as profane as Nadab and Abihu, and we're deserving of just as much judgment. That's a good answer. And what about the um, the retort might be, well, then are you saying that we're just to be robots? Um, feelings, we should just throw out our, out our feelings. It's all about just the truth and, and just kind of going through the motions. We're like robots and just worshiping exactly the way he wants to worship. Emotions play no role. They're evil. We should just toss them out. Well, no, emotions are not evil. They can be evil, but you'll notice in the illustration that I gave you earlier when I talked about a train and how the, the train, the engine of the train is truth and that pulls the emotions. Um, emotions are part of the uh, are part of the package. You read through the Psalms and you hear David expressing these laments of, of sorrow, feeling abandoned by God and feeling downcast. And, yeah. and yet when you read those Psalms, what, what you see David do with his emotions is he'll express his emotions and talk honestly about what his emotions are. But then when those emotions don't comport with the word of God, when they don't line up with scripture, David actually ends up speaking truth to his emotions. So he'll say 
Why, O oh soul, are you downcast within me? Why, O oh soul, do you feel this way? Why are you down? And then he will go through truth about God and about God's faithfulness and about God's purposes and about God's promises. And then he will say to his soul, you know, he will, he will speak to his emotions and his soul and say, you must obey the truth of this. I feel my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how I feel. David would say Psalm 22, but the truth is not in Psalm 22 verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the truth is in Psalm 22 verse 24, Later on in the psalm, when he says, God has not forsaken the one, nor has he abandoned him, nor has he turned his face away from me. So those are examples of where you have to be, if you allow truth to dictate, or sorry, if you allow emotions to dictate your behavior and your beliefs and your, your truths, then you will end up a person that is tossed to and fro, living in bondage to your emotions, which can change at a whim. You know, somebody can be downcast and despondent at one moment and the next moment be on the top of a mountain of joy. Do you really want to live a life where your truth is determined or your your worldview, your perspective and your entire life is driven by things that can change and swing so wildly in a matter of only a few moments? Or do you want to be driven by something that never changes? And that is truth. So when we are when we are governed by truth and and driven by truth and we live our lives by truth, our emotions will will naturally follow suit. And when circumstances come in and try and pull our emotions off the tracks, as it were, we have to, with our mind and with our heart, grab, lay hold of truth and begin to inform our emotions with truth and say to ourselves, soul, you have no right to be in despair because God is on his throne and God rules and he is good all the time. And all the time God is good. He is sovereign. And he is doing all things for his glory and for your good. We have to, we have to make truth inform our hearts and our emotions so that we are thinking and acting and feeling in a way that is governed by the truth of God's word. And that's those are those emotions then are in are in servitude to the truth of God and to my sanctification rather than my emotions determining what I think to be true, believe to be true, and and whether or not I'm I'm sanctified. I don't want and my this emotions is really, to sanctify me. Oh yeah. I mean, this is a really good case for being very intentional in in what kind of things you take into your mind, what kind of things you're watching, you're listening to you're reading, you're studying. Um, I, yeah. I think far too many Christians aren't as cautious about those things, not because yeah. they don't think they matter, but I, I think that many Christians probably just don't believe they're as influenced as they really are. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we're, we're fish swimming in water. We don't even realize we're wet. We just, the world. And, and honestly, all three of us sitting here talking about and lamenting the condition of the church we have our own ways that we're influenced by the world that we're not even aware of. And, and I know that to be true. It's not like I think that any yeah. one of the three of us or all three of us are somehow immune from this, um, this worldliness that presses itself upon us. But if you have no, if you have no self-awareness so that you can try and step back from time to time and say, what are the ways in which I'm a product of my environment? Mm -hmm. right? The world is telling me to believe this and to think this and to feel this. Yeah. In what ways am I, am actuating to that and being affected by it. Mm. Um, we, we have to have an awareness that it's the world is always seeking to press us into its mold. And, and therefore we should seek to not be pressed into that mold, but be conformed and transformed by the renewing of our mind. Yeah. I just started yeah. teaching a, a church history class and just looking over church history. One of the lessons is that even as we look to our, our forefathers in the faith who were 
extremely faithful and bold in, in their defense of the truth. Uh, we also many ways in which they were influenced by the culture and didn't realize it. And, and that should yeah. be a warning to us that none of us are above that temptation. None of us are, are above uh, that uh, that kind of uh, influence uh, from the world around us. And so uh, so mention some some questions that or, or maybe some approaches. Um, talk a little bit more to that. I mean, you started getting into that, but how, how does the Christian today, the one who is seeking to be faithful to the word, uh, walking as closely as he or she can with God, um, how do we continue to um, guard ourselves against that kind of influence, or how do we help root out that kind of influence? Um, one way is, I think, to always evaluate or be be aware. Uh, how should I say this? Uh, I would say we should be intentional about evaluating the messages that the world sends us. Mm-hmm. Um, when we read headlines and when we read news stories, we we have to be aware that. What we're reading always comes with a perspective. There's always a worldview behind everything. And, and, and yeah. Christians maybe would be well served to begin with some good worldview education. Um, if you want a, a source of news that I think does a very good job of, of doing that from a biblical Christian worldview, I would say World Magazine. I don't know how you guys feel about World Magazine, the world and everything, and it's a good podcast. They're Christians, some, some of them, most of them from a Reformed background who do a real good job of reporting news from a Christian perspective. But it, when we... When we read the news, when we um, are taking in the headlines of the day and scrolling through Twitter, we got to be aware that every social media platform is trying to affect how we think and how we respond. They're giving us notifications. They're giving us, you know, bings and they're giving us a vibration on our phone in order to get us to respond a certain way. They're feeding us in our algorithm things that are going to cause us to feel a certain way. They elicit our emotions to keep us in the app to inform our minds. We, we have to be aware that every, every message that comes at us from outside in the world is coming at us from a perspective. And so then we have to start to ask ourselves, okay, what is this perspective? Where are these people coming from? Is it liberal? Is it conservative? Is it, is it atheistic? Is it agnostic? Is it new age? Is it a, a quasi-Christian spirituality? What is the message that's being sent here? Yeah. Um, and, and we have to we have to just be intentional about trying to analyze that and 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 not fall prey to the the wiles of the devil. And of course, being informed by the truth of God's word and having a regular quiet time. Uh, I tell people you should you should be. There's really no excuse not to do this, but everybody should make it their goal to read through the entire. Bible, all of scripture once every year. That's my, that's my personal goal. I've been doing that for 27 years. Haven't missed a year. It's very doable. You've got to have the word of God in your heart and in your mind. It's got to be a part of your daily, your daily intake. And, and I'm, I do that uh, in the morning. That's not part of my study routine as a pastor for sermon preparation or preparing messages or lessons or speaking engagements or anything like that. That's just my own personal. Every morning I do that. And I've done it for all these years. And, and if I knew that the Lord was coming back tomorrow afternoon, I would s- step up tomorrow morning and still read my allotted portion of scripture. Mm-hmm. And if um, um, I, I would just do it, it's the single best spiritual discipline I have ever adopted. It's just the regular systematic reading of scripture. And that, you know, you can talk about all the things that we ought to be doing, but that on top of regularly listening to good sermons and and evaluating what you're being taught in your local church and always comparing that to scripture and being very diligent to inform your mind with the truth of God's word constantly. 
Yeah, that that's being transformed by the renewing your mind. Uh, that's exactly what we need. Well, what what are what are some maybe some common examples that I think good and well-intending Christians do you think are are being influenced by the world? Common examples of Christians being influenced by the world. Um, I think one that's in the headlines right now, I think one of the, 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 the ways that we see, and I, I don't even know how to use the term, using the term Christians here, I have to use it in a very loose way, but so I'm putting that in kind of scare quotes for a moment, if you will. But I see that the church is, if the church is capitulating on any front, the church right now is tempted to capitulate on the homosexual issue. Mm-hmm. That issue, I think, is is causing a lot of churches to go soft on preaching and I guess that's a there's a double entendre there with the term soft in terms of you know effeminate but churches are going soft in their doctrinal statements and their their willingness to stand up against the agenda and speak the truth about God's plan for human sexuality and gender and gender identification yeah. and all of that that that's a huge way that I think right now the world is just cramping down clamping down on Christians and trying to, to force us into its mold and you have fewer and fewer men who are willing to stand up and just say what's true. Uh, I think another example yeah. is the egalitarian, complementarian issue that the churches are dealing with. The Southern Baptist denomination is force, uh, facing this. I think they're going to continue to face this year after year after year, as many times as they revisit it. You're always going to have a contingent of Rick Warrens and people in the Southern Baptist denomination who want women pastors and female leaders for, for whatever pagan reason they have those desires they have those desires that's a way that i think the world is forcing itself into the church and onto the church um man yeah you know some of the examples that i think of um i I mean we've talked about biblical counseling on on this uh, podcast but even the effect of psychology on our thinking um when we talk about sins and we tend to label them as as addictions which uh they're the, the term itself may may not be incorrect in the sense that we keep going back to it. Um, but we got to be careful about labeling something that makes it sound like it's something outside of us, that the responsibility lies outside of us. Yeah. Um, or, it, you know, the there's things like heaven helps those who help themselves. And this idea that you have to love yourself before you love others. I think even good and well-intending Christians who, who might be quite solid in a lot of areas uh, can fall trapped to, to this kind of thinking without realizing that, that what they're saying to themselves is actually not biblical. Yeah. And, you know, another way it just dawned on me is the is the whole the, the whole way in which um, the political environment ends up uh, swaying Christians. You'll find uh, Christians who are willing to just go along with whatever the, the political messages of the day are that sound conservative, yeah. um, whether it's we need to support this candidate or we need to support the current thing or whatever the whatever the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age is telling us we need to go along with that. I mean, it was, we saw during covid how the progressive wing of the Christian church uh, tried to tell us increasingly time after time that the way to love your neighbor was to mask up. The way to love your neighbor was to get the shot. The way to love your neighbor was to shut down your church. The way to love your neighbor was to social distance. The most loving thing you could do was to let grandma die alone in a nursing home without any human touch or any human contact whatsoever. And, and the grandparents had to hug their children through uh, plastic and uh, plastic tarps. And this was a worldly way of thinking that was ungodly, unbiblical, absolutely pagan. And Christians went along with it. Now, how many Christians do we know who thought Anthony Fauci was a savior um, and who mm-hmm. went along with every narrative that the CDC, the WHO, or the federal government told us? 
and you know shut down your churches and shut down your families and shut down the economy and and uh, that's what it means to be Christian and to love one another. It's the the David French approach to Christianity that just it's amazing how many Christians wake up every morning and and get their free trade coffee and and sit down to the newspaper and get their marching orders for the day wearing their David French underoos and they think that that's what it means to be a Christian, and that's entirely a pagan perspective on Christianity and and that's that whole. There's a spirit of the age that is that is giving us our marching orders, and that is just drawing so many Christians away from biblical truth and, and right into whatever the current fad is. Yeah, and for those who, who making... are listening, yeah, sorry, oh, sorry. Ahead, for those who are listening, in case I, I think everyone knows who David French is, but in case you're not sure, David French is is someone who claims to be a conservative Christian, but his <laughs> viewpoints um, tend to be anything but. So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, he's a liar. But anyway, um, moving along from French, um, you know, all this makes probably the best case for why people should be doing exactly what you recommended earlier, Jim, being in the word regularly. I mean, if anyone had their hackles raised while you were saying any of what you were just saying, I think it's just a good sign that they're probably not in the word enough. And I, I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but you, you know, as Christians, we've got to realize that we are influenced by the world around us in ways that are ungodly and unbiblical. And, and as you say, e- even the three of us. Um, but you, you, you've got to you've got to recognize that. And then the only way to combat that the only way to combat worldliness is to be being retrained by the word. And if you look at the statistics of Christians who spend time regularly uh, reading the Word of God on on a daily basis, it's less than ten percent. Now you can take stats with a grain of salt, but with a number that low, right? The majority of people who profess to be Christians and many who are indeed actually saved, you know, are just sort of barely, right? They're mm-hmm. saved, but they're not being inundated by God's Word. They're not being renewed by God's Word. They're just kind of going along life, being carried around by you know whatever the latest thing is uh, because they're not in the word of god and i think because they're not in the word of god we the only other thing to be led by is ultimately their their own fallen humanity their emotions yeah. their you know wh- whatever the worldly thing of the day is and i think one of those big things you touched on and this is a maybe a good segue kind of into the next question um is you know what do christians need to do to prepare to live in an increasingly hostile world. You mentioned the homosexuality, uh, the, the homosexual movement. And I, and I think we'd all probably agree. This is the most pressing issue of the day. Um, this is where the most pressure and the most antagonistic pressure is coming from, at least in our own culture. Right. Um, yeah. And it, it, you know, it's, it's causing um, uh, otherwise solid Christians who maybe aren't capitulating, but it's just causing them to become silent. Right. Which is a thing, too. And so if someone was thinking, well, I'm not capitulating, it's still wrong, but maybe I just don't need to speak up. Well, in my mind, that's that's equally as bad, because if you take that view, then there are just things I know you aren't doing in your Christian life. Like you you aren't witnessing to these people. You can't witness to the homosexual if you're afraid of them. Right. If you're being silent. And I think that pressure is going to continue in, in our society. Um, just, I mean, if you look at the way things are going, when, when the white house flies, you know, the, the homosexual flag that they stole from 
you know, God's rainbow and perverted. Uh, when that's in the center, it just is, I don't think it takes anyone with, you know, many brain cells to recognize we're going to continue going in that direction for a while. And so Christians now have a choice. They've had it in our country, but I think we're sort of at a crossroads in a big way in that the decisions Christians make now in terms of their willingness to stand for truth and be led by truth and to live by truth um, will determine, I think, in great part, how many fall away uh, or, or remain strong in the future. So let's just talk about that. What are some of the things Christians should be thinking now as things sort of get darker around us, more hostile in the Western world? Uh, what should we be thinking about? How should Christians be preparing themselves? What, what would you tell people in your congregation who come to you and they say, you know what, Jim, things are looking, uh, you know, we're getting all this pressure from the homosexuality uh, issues and things like that. We're a little bit afraid. We're a little bit apprehensive. You know, what can we be doing to steal ourselves? What would the Lord want from us? Yeah, I've actually been addressing this in the preaching series that I've been going through in the book of Hebrews because. Um, there you have a book written to first century Christians who were feeling the pressure to go back to a way of doing life and a religious system because, and they were feeling pressure from their, from their fellow countrymen, as well as from uh, family members who were saying, Hey, why did you abandon us for this uh, fake Messiah? And so they were feeling pressure And the book of Hebrews, uh, the author in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, he, he says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So those are the closing verses of chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. And there the, the author is talking about the sufferings, the very real afflictions that the, the, his readers were, were going through in the first century. And then and, and he says to them, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So the, the author is very straightforward about the sufferings that they were facing and he says in, in a different place, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So their suffering was real, but not to the point where people had been dying in, in their immediate context. But he says, you know, you're not you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, suggesting that this is this could very well be possible on the horizon. And I think that in modern America, in the West, we are in the same situation that the recipients of the book of Hebrews were in. We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. But we are getting a point to a point where we are being mocked. And in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, you know, we have suffered. We've been made a public spectacle. A spectacle. We're suffering reproaches and tribulations. Some have had their property seized and, and been uh, put into jail. Uh, we're at a point where we may be sort of crossing that threshold in America. So what does the author, how does the author encourage his readers? He says, you have need of endurance. Um, and he reminds them you know, you've, you've accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a better possession and a lasting one. So he he takes the, his readers and he's making them look forward to 
a time, the, 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 the time that is to come, the reward that is to come. He says you have need of endurance that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. There's a reward that is out there. Chapter 11, then, is the entire chapter on the faith heroes. And, and he says that, you know, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's And all the way through chapter 11, you see that those who endure faith's reproach, those who are reproached for their faith in Christ, end up receiving faith's reward. You know, Abraham lived in tents and he had no possession, but he looked forward to a land that God would give to him in accordance with the promises. Moses uh, looked past the pleasures and treasures of the land of Egypt and suffered instead the reproach of Christ, knowing that it was a greater treasure than anything Egypt could give to him. These were all men who never saw in their own lifetimes the promises that God gave to them, but they they looked forward. You know, Joseph Joseph enjoyed the treasures of Egypt, but he wanted his bones taken up from there into the land that God had promised to his people, knowing that God would resurrect him. So faith looks forward to a resurrection, a bodily resurrection that is to come, a time when God will fulfill all of his promises. And faith is willing to endure all of those reproaches in the present in order that we may have the reward that is to come when God faithfully rewards us. So I would say, first of all, you have to be aware that we are entering into a, t- a perilous times in America, and then you need to look forward to that reward, and you need to have in your mind a crystal clear idea of what that reward is going to entail, and and live in faith and faithfulness. And, and Hebrews has a Hebrews 11 has that change at the end of the chapter where you know he's going through all of the. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, he says, time will tell, uh, fail if I uh, tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel, the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Those are all the great accomplishments of faith. But then he turns that corner in the middle of a sentence and he says, um, Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. There's the looking forward to something better that is to come. And others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword, went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. These are men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These people gained approval through their faith, but did not receive what was promised. So we have to live with the understanding that our faith does not promise us that we will receive the reward for our faith and the reproaches and the tribulations in this life. And we need to be looking forward to the life that is to come and have our faith firmly fixed on the life that is to come, the, the, the new heavens, the new earth in which only righteousness dwells and eternity with God in physical bodies and a physical creation enjoying the delights that he has planned for those who are his. That's the reward that faith promises. And, and we need to get our minds and our hearts off of this world and on the world to come for our citizenship is in heaven. We need to fix our mind on heavenly things and, and, and concentrate on that and be, be thinking about and, and meditating on the promises that God has given to us and reminding ourselves again that America is not our home. When we pray, um, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is an imprecatory prayer. We are praying that Christ will return and destroy the kingdoms of this earth, and he will destroy the United States of America. It will be nothing. It will mean nothing in the end. It will all be about Christ. Our king will return, and he will establish his kingdom, and we will reign with him forever and ever. And everything in this world is passing away, and that has to be our perspective.
Yeah, this is touching on such a huge issue today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just instantly takes me back to uh, Ecclesiastes where, where he says in um, chapter seven or 10, I can't remember now, uh, chapter seven, um, where he says not to look back to the former days and say these days were better, right? Um, and then you go into the, the Beatitudes and, and Jesus is talking about being persecuted and the hope that he gives is the hope of what's to come in the future, right? Not, yeah. uh, not to try to make things better because they were better in the past or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and, and I think that this is such a huge, um, a, a huge thing for believers because it not only does it guard us against despair and depression, but it also guards the Christian uh, against trying to in, take part in worldly endeavors to make things better because they perceived it was better in a past time or whatever the case may be. And, and then I think it also just helps um, guard us from being led by emotions, particularly fear, right? Fear mm-hmm. is a powerful emotion. Um, it, men build platforms on fear. Nations, uh, nation, nation leaders control their people by fear. I mean, it, political it's a powerful, parties get powerful you to- things. Political parties get you to vote for their candidates based on fear. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. nobody has a positive message. They just don't. They, the, 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 the winner goes, the trophy goes to the people who convince you to vote for their guy because the other guy is so horrible. That's what we're told every yeah. election cycle. It is all based upon fear. Yeah. And then, it, you know, let me just read this actually from Matthew. I mean, we, we've read this many times on the podcast here, but uh, Jesus is going through talking about being persecuted. Verse 10 in chapter five, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's pointing to future uh, 11, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad well why jesus should we rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great just what you're saying no promise of you know an earthly realization of that but but rejoice because what is coming for you is is great yep his the reward uh, and when I went through Hebrews chapter 11, I kept referring to, for our people's sake, kept referring to the reproach of faith and the reward of faith. Those who endure by faith, the reproach that faith brings. And if you are faith, if you have faith and you are faithful in this world, you will be reproached. So those who endure the reproach of faith in the present receive the reward of faith in the future. That's that's the equation. God is, that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You will be reproached for it like Moses was, like Abraham was, like the prophets were of old, like Jesus was. He said, the world hated me first before it hated you. It will hate you because it hated me. You're not of this world. If you're of this world, the world will love its own, but you're not of this world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So they will reproach us for our faith. They will reproach us for the one in whom we have placed our faith. And we're by faith, we must endure that and be faithful, not a man like Esau who sold his own birthright for a pot of soup. We must endure and be faithful, and in the end, we will receive the reward that comes to the faithful. That is his promise. And, and if you well don't know said. what that is, yeah. and, and if, you don't, if you don't fix your mind on that, you'll never yeah. be able to endure. If you have no clear mm-hmm. picture of the reward that is to come. Amen. And uh, Jim, you've made a couple of uh, references to politics, that politics easily kind of sway the Christian into thinking that, hey, you need to vote for this candidate, you need to do what this party says, and 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 so on and so forth. 
Um, so what is your view with regards to the Christian and politics? Does the Christian, is the Christian supposed to completely detach themselves from all political matters? Um, should the Christian be involved in, in trying to push together the, the, the passing of policies, which are good, um, the overturning of things like Roe v. Wade? Uh, what, what is, I know this is a huge topic, but maybe in just a, a few sentences, what, what's your position there? My position is that as a Christian, I want to be as involved as I can be without distracting myself from other issues of ministry and family, et cetera. I'm going to be as involved as I can be in pushing back against the spirit of the age and doing the most good for my neighbor that I can possibly good do. So if that means that I should be an, an informed voter because I've been given a vote as a st- something that I need to steward. So I take voting very seriously and inform my children and, and my wife and, and others around me the best I can. As a church, I'm not handing out voter guides on a Sunday morning. We're not putting, you know, flyers under windshields. We're not putting recommended candidates in the bulletin or anything like that. So I, there's a clear distinction there. Our church, our worship services, and our, and our and our emphasis of that is all on God and His Word. But as a citizen, I see myself exercising, working in a different realm, the realm of the world. I'll go out and I'll vote on issues. I, I never miss an election, a referendum, a opportunity to vote on an off-year election, anything like that. Anytime I have an opportunity to make my voice heard in that regard, I do. I do post some political things on Facebook and, and Twitter. I'm involved in there. I think having uh, policy decisions and and conversations about what's going on in the world from a biblical perspective is necessary. When the Bible speaks to political issues, we should speak to political issues and bring the word of God to bear on those issues in a timely manner. Um, I'm all in favor of that. So I I have friends who are very involved in politics and and do more in that, but they don't neglect service in the church either. And again, one of our elders is, is very politically involved and he was away from the church this last Sunday and being involved with, uh, the local Republican committee doing some work that he's doing there. And, and yet he teaches at all Sunday school class and serves in, in counseling and, and in our worship service. So it's, you know, we're, we're involved in two realms and I think we should be in, as involved as we can in both realms and doing what we can um, to do good to our neighbor. And I see politics and voting as an opportunity to do that. But at the end of the day, I, I vote and then I sleep well at night knowing that God establishes, raises up Kings and puts down Kings and, and uh, he's in charge of that. So he directs the heart of the king in, in whatever way he chooses. And Joe Biden is obviously God's judgment upon this nation. And and even though I didn't vote for Biden and I will vote against him in the next election, if he runs, I'll, I'll vote for the candidate that most uh, closely resembles my my own political views and I think has a biblical worldview. There's no perfect candidate. So I do the best that I can with the vote that I have and, and then leave the results to God. So, Jim, let me ask you in line with this, what would be a good litmus test for the Christian uh, in terms of knowing where they, they've they kind of crossed the line? How, how do I know if I'm putting more faith and trust in politics um, r- rather than in Christ and the sovereignty of God? Because I think that's a line that could be very easily crossed, right? Where, what would you say yeah. about that? Uh, read a headline and then and then gauge your emotional response. <laughs> I mean, when you see when you see a headline that talks about, you know, uh, the president selling oil reserves to China or Hunter Biden gets gets away with, uh, you know, five or six or seven or 10 crimes that any of the three of us locked up inside of an instant mm-hmm. um, that, that 
that uh, former presidents being prosecuted for doing the exact same thing that every former president's ever done, but none of them have been prosecuted for it. When you read those headlines, does it cause you to lose sleep at night? Are you in angst over it? Do you, are you worried about it? Do you get angry and frustrated and emotionally wrapped up in it? If you do, you need to check where your heart is at in th those things. This, again, this world is not our home. I don't expect these people to act like Christians. I, I'm looking at this, trying to look at this from a biblical perspective and saying, yeah, we're, we're a nation that is under the judgment of God. We're not a nation of of laws anymore. We're a nation of lawless people being ruled by lawless people where the people who have the, the might make it right and, and do what they want. And, and that's a sign of God's judgment. We're in Romans one. We've been turned over to a morally debased and depraved mind so that our culture now approves the things that are horrific and the things that are abhorrent to God. That's, that's Romans one. We've reached that point. So I know where we're at. I know what time of the day it is in terms of the empire and in terms of, of this world and this culture, uh, I know where we're at on the slippery slope and you just have to evaluate that and, and go back to the sovereignty of God. And, and I think that that's a good test. Just, just read the headline and then check your heart. Where, where are you at at it? And, and are you understanding it in terms of truth? Are you resting in God and his providence? And then are you saying to yourself, oh, this is the end of everything. I should just be in despair. Or are you saying to yourself, yes, the days are evil. Therefore, I should be doing as much good as I can. And I must get busy and, and work while it's still called today. Yeah. Paul says redeem the time because it's short. That's right. Because exactly. their days are evil. So get out there and make the best use of it and, and don't be worrying about it. So in the 10 minutes we got left, Jim, let's kind of wrap this up with just some some practical uh, practical stuff here. So someone uh, someone's listened to all this and they say, okay, I've got some work to do. I kind of know where these areas are, but um, I, I'm going back to something you said earlier about just being a faithful Christian. So as um, pressure is mounted against Christians uh, in, in their, mor their, their morality in the U.S., and there's there's pressure on us to not evangelize. There's pressure about hate speech and all this sort of thing. What does being faithful look like? How should I be thinking about that um, as a Christian? What what would you say to your congregants who are coming and saying, Jim, I'm on board. I've got work to do. But but what does a faithful like look like? Just kind of a, a general summation of that. Yeah, let me back up one step. Um to something I need to say prior to that, and that is that if you're watching this or listening to this and you are not in a good solid church and your family is not, a church is not a commitment and that community of faith is not a commitment for you, you need to begin right there and evaluate that because you, you are going to have no capacity to live faithfully in a hostile world if you are not tied in with a, a faith family of believers where the word is being taught and where your soul is being discipled. So uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 10 you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That That is spoken to a group of people who were facing hostility. And the temptation is always to begin to neglect that gathering of the saints for the sake of ease or comfort or convenience or whatever it is. And so if you've neglected that, you need to repent. And right now you need to attach yourself. You need to be in membership at the best possible local church you can find where the word of God is being taught. And if you can't find something that's in traveling distance from your family, you need to get you need to find like-minded believers and begin to meet with them at least once a week. Consider planting a church in your area. Consider, consider calling a, a pastor to plant a church in, in your environment. Um, make the trip somewhere to get your soul fed. Find some way of nourishing your soul, even if it's podcast or, or streaming a church service. But don't let that be your 
substitute for fellowship and accountability with other Christians. You need to have people in your life who hold you accountable and people who can feed your soul. So make that a priority. Find a way of satisfying that requirement and, and get involved in the community first. So that's out of the way. Now somebody comes and says, okay, what should I be doing? Uh, number one, you should be looking at uh, making sure that you're well-fed on the word of God from you know the pulpit. And if somebody in my congregation, make sure that I, I would say you, you need to be making sure that you are attending services regularly, that you are taking the word of God in and that you are meditating on the truth of God on a daily basis. That, that, that all has to do with, um, you know, our approach to the word of God and, and having truth inform our hearts and our minds. Second, you need to be serving other people in the body, using your gifts to serve other people, get to know people, tie in. Don't just come here and, you know, do your 45 minutes on an hour, hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, and then think that you have fulfilled your responsibility. Be exercising hospitality towards everybody in the congregation. Get to know, press into the lives of people. Get to know them, their needs, their families, etc. Form some deep and abiding friendships and sit down and have spiritual conversations with people. And you get together for your men's fellowship or your men's group. How deep is it? Are you guys just sitting down and talking about God, gold, and guns? Or are you talking about um, the spiritual things that nourish and cherish our souls and, and things that build us up? And, and be pressing into each other's lives, getting to know each other's needs and getting to know each other's struggles. And how can you pray? for one another? How can you help one another? How can you give to one another? It's, it's going to be about, if we're going to live in a hostile world, it's going to be about how the word of God informs our thinking and our behavior and how uh, we sacrificially give ourselves to others and others will be giving themselves to us. And that builds a, a strong faith community that we should not neglect and a strong faith community that will carry us through difficult times. Amen. And, and everybody in the body has to be intentional about building that community and serving it and strengthening it and, and asking yourself, what, how can I use my gifts, my skills, my abilities to make this a better place and to encourage these people and to serve one another? How, how can I lay down my life for others? That's, that's the goal. Well said. Uh, yeah. Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13, uh, pastors and teachers, we are here to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, just in one sentence right there, we are here in order to enable the flock to serve one another and help build up the church. Right. Amen. Well, Jim, thank you so much for uh, coming on with us today. I mean, just some really valuable thoughts that I think the body of Christ is going to desperately need here in the future. So thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for both. Thank you to both of you. Absolutely. Thank you. And yes. guys, so we appreciate you joining us. I hope that this episode uh, has been helpful to you. Uh, if it has, feel free to uh, share it. Um, and the Jim Osmond's books, uh, links to those things will be in the show notes. Make sure you avail yourselves of that. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.